Well, hello and welcome to this week's of Photographic Life. Hopefully this week, no dogs, no rain. Let's see how we go, shall we? Um, over the summer, I put out three uh, podcasts um, in the row, which were kind of, I suppose, in a way to kind of address the situation with photo books, really. Each one dealt with a different aspect of photo books and the, the making and the distribution and so forth. Uh, if you if you didn't hear those, maybe you want you want to go back into the archive and, and to to listen to them. But the reason I, I kind of raised that this week is because uh, just at the weekend I was at an event, a two day event, um, devoted to the photo book, and I went along with my wife and and my youngest daughter, and we had a, a stroll around on the Sunday morning. A nice thing to do the kind of thing I suppose you might do at a record fair or an antiques fair or a um, yard sale or a flea market, that kind of wandering around. And the the the, uh, the event was filled with tables with different booksellers and distributors and photographers as well um, selling their wares. And as I walked around, what I started to realise, and actually what my wife commented on, was that I wasn't really showing very much interest in any of the books. And I suppose in a way, that's a bit of a problem because surely as somebody really involved with photography, engaged with photography as a photographer, as a writer, as an educator, I really should be um, interested in these books. But what I found going around was that there are a number of books that I, I knew the work anyway. and. There's some beautifully designed books, some wonderful artifacts, even a mixture of, of different kind of price points. But, you know, I'm, I have a life to lead. I have, uh, uh, I suppose, expectations I have to fulfill financially. And um, nothing was really making me dip into my pocket and think, I really need to own that. Well, what then I, I started to think, well, What's wrong with me if, if I'm not the audience for these books? Who is the audience for these books? And is there an audience for these books? What I started to then think about was, well, why are these books being created? Are we in a situation whereby every photographer believes that the project they're working on must become a book? Are we in a point now whereby the photographer, because of the ease, although there is a cost obviously involved, but, you know, digital printing has made uh, photo books much easier to make. Um, and at the same time, uh, websites and social media has made them much easier to distribute. But at the same time, actually quite difficult to distribute because you've got to work really hard at um, selling a book through your website or through social media, hopefully to an audience that you've built. So, you know, this, although it is easier, I suppose you could argue to actually produce the book, everything else that follows on from that can be really difficult and, um, and time consuming. And when you've put a huge amount of work into the book, I, I know from my own perspective, you know, you're kind of, I know when I finish a book, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm over it. Let's um, let somebody else handle that. But of course, particularly if you're going to self-publish, and a lot of these books I was looking at were self-published or through small independent publishers, there's a lot more work to, done one, uh, to do once the book is completed. 
So what it led me then to think was, well, are the photographers producing these books aware of the audience? Have they considered the audience? Who's actually going to buy the book before they've made the book? Or are they working on the basis that because they are really engaged and excited and interested by the subject or the stories that they're telling, that inevitably other people will? Which, of course, is not always the case. So I left that um, particular event actually relatively quickly and we decided to go and get some lunch. But the thought process of why I wasn't drawn to those books and why I didn't buy any of those books, that stayed with me. I've spoken before about the whole situation of pay to play and um, it's something I suppose which is another one of the themes that runs through this podcast. But um, thanks to uh, photographer Tom Broadbent for making me aware of something which I was aware of and have been aware of for many years actually which is the situation whereby certain independent magazines quite often very expensive uh, magazines expect photographers to pay to be in that magazine it's quite often done in a kind of surreptitious way um, with a photographer not realizing that there was a an expectation on them perhaps until the pictures have actually been laid out or even printed. I know of one situation where a photographer suddenly got uh, an invoice in the post for many thousands of dollars. But Tom made me aware of a magazine that I'd never heard of before, but I'm going to just read a little bit off of their website and then uh, leave it to you to uh, make your own decision about what you think about this. So it's called Dodho, D-O-D-H-O magazine. It says Dodho magazine intends to open avenues for creative heads who can indulge viewers with their amazing skills. It's a window to showcase your talent and interact with the experts of industry. We let you surpass all the struggles and obstacles and jump on the road to unending success. You can widen your professional reach and welcome prosperity by displaying your art through our edition. Photographers belonging to any background and of all levels, whether professionals or newbies, I hate that term, are welcome to contribute their masterpiece, not just a photograph, a masterpiece, in the printed edition of Dodho magazine. Being the only reputable source to showcase fresh and unique talent, that's quite a claim, from across the globe, Dodho is renowned to be the premier magazine to introduce new talent. We pride in being the benchmark for promoting real art and genuine creativity. Encouraging our contributors, we aim to expand the photography industry with innovation and newness. From New York to Dubai, Barcelona to Los Angeles, we have a widespread online reach. Within the moments of getting published, our Dodho editions will be in the hands of top book editors, well-known festival directors, agents and curators, every corner of the world. You can send a single image for 10 euros, you can send three images for 20 euros, or you can send five images for 30 euros. The magazine costs 25 pounds per copy. There are a few photography critics and commentators 
who I enjoy reading. And actually, I'll be completely honest, there are only a few that I ever really understand. So if you're with me on that, stay tuned for what's about to come. There is one, however, who really does straddle the history of photography and whose writing is really well worth checking out. It's A.D. Coleman, or Alan Douglas, as he was born in Brooklyn, New York, in 1943. During the McCarthy era, uh, his family moved to France and then briefly to England before returning to the U.S., Aside from that interruption, he was raised in Manhattan, where he went to school in Greenwich Village. He received a BA in English Literature from Hunter College in 1964 and started writing in 1967, taking up the position as the first ever photo critic for the New York Times. He's authored 120 articles during his tenure there, and he's contributed to The Village Voice, The New York Observer, and numerous magazines, artist monographs, and other publications worldwide. He's published eight books and more than 2,000 essays on photography and related subjects. Coleman has lectured and taught internationally, and his work has been translated into 21 languages and published in 31 countries. In 1994, he was a Fulbright Senior Scholar in Sweden, and in 1996, he was the Ansel and Virginia Adams Distinguished Scholar in Residence at the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson, Arizona. Since 1995, he served as a publisher and executive director of The Nearby Café, a multi-subject electronic magazine where his blog on photography, Photo Critic International appears. He also founded and directs photography criticism Cyber Archive, the most extensive online database ever created of writing about photography by authors past and present, and he co-directs the New Eyes Project, an online resource for everyone teaching photography to young people. In 2010, he received the J. Dudley Johnston Award for a Lifetime Achievement in Writing About Photography from the Royal Photographic Society, and uh, Coleman's first major curatorial effort, Saga, The Journey of Arno Raphael Minkinen, made its debut in both book and exhibition form in September 2005, and that now tours internationally. A second museum-scale curatorial project, China, Insights, premiered in 2008, and that continues to tour the US. Since 2005, exhibitions that Coleman has curated have opened at museums and galleries in Canada, China, Finland, Italy, Romania, Slovakia, and uh, the US. His book, Critical Focus, received the International Center of Photography's Infinity Award for writing on photography in 1995, and he still writes and talks on photography internationally and lives in New York. I think after all of that, we really need to hear from the man himself. Hello, this is A.D. Coleman speaking to you from New York City. Presently, I'm celebrating 51 years of activity as a critic, historian, educator, and curator of photography. So my answer to the question of what photography means to me has changed over the decades. Here are some of my current thoughts on the matter. This past spring, during the question and answer period after a lecture I gave in Helsinki, Finland, I turned the tables, 
asking the audience a question. I told them that I was phrasing it in exactly the reverse way I would have phrased it 51 years ago. How many people here are not carrying cameras? Please raise your hands. I then invited them to look around. Not a single hand had gone up. This, I explained, represents the long-awaited realization of the vision of photography that many have claimed for it since its invention circa 1839, the true democratization of visual communication. When everyone carries a camera and makes photos as a matter of course, on a regular, daily, even moment-to-moment -moment basis, and not only makes photos, but distributes them to others, whether just a friend or family member, or instead the entire global internet community, the medium has at last become truly democratized. So it's digital imaging and the World Wide Web that have brought us there. As a citizen, I embrace this development. I consider it a good thing that an evolving technology has enabled everyone or at least everyone with access to a smartphone and the internet to communicate visually with no special training, skill set, or equipment necessary. As a critic, however, I bemoan the endless tsunami of imagery that overwhelms and short-circuits our ability to engage critically with it. So I must add this caution. Perhaps you know the process by which the foie gras cherished by chefs and gourmets gets produced. In Strasbourg, France, where this production system originated, they take geese, shove funnels down their throats, and crank in way more feed than any normal goose would consume as a matter of choice. Most of it, of course, passes along the digestive tract even faster than the proverbial shit through a goose. The goose's hopeless effort to digest all that grain results in an abnormally swollen, fatty liver, from which that delicacy gets made. This benefits the people who raise those geese, the butchers who carve them up, the chefs who cook them to perfection, and the gourmets who savor them. In sum, it benefits everyone, Everyone, that is, but the goose. We are the Strasbourg geese of the data age. Every day the global communication network stuffs us with more visual input than we can possibly analyze and absorb. The main difference between us and those geese is that, unlike them, we initiated this force-feeding of data into ourselves and we're aware of what's being done to us. But we share with them the inability to do anything about it. Neither we nor the geese can change our hard wiring. There's only so much data that we can process in a way that truly informs it, that turns raw data into information. The ability to quickly skim visual data and derive something from it constitutes a skill, to be sure. But as a habit, it undercuts the ability to engage thoughtfully and critically with such data and thereby develop an informed relationship to it. 
Photoliteracy is an acquired analytical methodology. We have never incorporated it into our educational system. And now, when we need it more than ever, the possibility of doing so seems increasingly remote. First of all, I'd like to just say what a pleasure it is to have uh, A.D. Coleman on the podcast um, and to have his thoughts. So much in there that kind of chimes with things we've been talking about. Last week I was talking about this idea of the use of the word democratic and democracy um, with relationships to photography. And I, I think it's very interesting what he's talking about there with visual literacy because I quite often think of, and I, actually I teach photography um, as a language, not necessarily as a practice. The practice is part of the understanding of the language, of course. But as a parent governor, which I am of a school, it really does surprise me that we allow um, children, I suppose, um, pupils at schools, young people, to have this incredibly powerful tool in their pocket, but never spend any time to explain what it could do for them, how they could manipulate that tool and what that uh, tool could do for them as a communication tool. It's so often seen as um, a piece of evil um, that it should be kept out of the school, it should be hidden away, and that it's the, the fault and the reason for so much unhappiness. Of course, at the end of the day, it's no different to any other tool. It's how the person uses it and the understanding of the potential that that tool has, which actually, uh, I suppose, um, takes us into a different place as to whether or not the tool is controlling us or whether or not we're controlling the tool i've gone a little bit theory i've gone a little bit deep maybe this week but as i keep saying you know we've had a previous podcast where we've dealt with uh, i think it was custard manufacture factor and this week we're talking about foie gras we're not talking about fuji canon or nikon on uh, this podcast and i hope you like it that way Anyway, um, great stuff there by Alan, and um, I'm sure that you'll want to um, play that back and just go through some of the things he's saying, unpick them, and maybe it will also um, change or maybe inform the way in which you feel at the moment about photography with the smartphone um, and about social media. Um, I do hope we're past that time now where people, photographers, aren't saying that it's not a real photograph or it's not a proper photograph or a, it cannot be a good photograph because it was captured on a smartphone and also that they feel the need to say that it's a smartphone photograph or an iPhone photograph as if that was some kind of a kind of caveat to the quality or type of the photograph that's being created. Anyway, a little bit of a hobby horse of that, um, that one is for me, um, and certainly something that, as I spoke last week, another thing that actually occurs uh, in my latest book. But as we were saying last week, things are starting to fall into place. It's all getting a little bit neat and tidy. Hopefully in future weeks, we'll have a few more uh, uh, I suppose rocks being thrown at the glass house. I always like it that way. But anyway, 
um, that's it for this week. Um, no interruptions. And I, although I've had a bad cold, my voice, I hope, has, um, I think, has um, held good. So uh, I'm hoping to get over a cold. I hope all things are good with you. But of course, please take care. <laughs>